Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hello, everyone. My name is Magdalena, and I'm a grateful member of Alanon. Thank you so much, Lee, for asking me to speak. And, and Polly, when I get a call from Polly, I get scared. It's like, <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> Is this okay? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, my name is like, oh, Christy, thank you so much for hosting me. She's so great. She, you know, she called me at work a few times, and, and we have been, you know, I, I would say, wait, close, wait till I close my door. I don't want anybody to hear because I keep my anonymity. My anonymity is very important to me. So I closed my door, and then she was gracious enough to wait. And she always had this smile in her, in her voice that it was just so great. So thank you, Christy. It's so great to get to know you better this weekend. Um, my home group is the Renton Thursday night. is the oldest group in the state of Washington. My home group is one of those groups that, that it was there before Allen and existed. And back in the day, what, what Al-Anons used to do, the families of the alcoholics used to do, they used to send a, um, a registration form to Alcoholics Anonymous and the alcoholics didn't know what to do with all those registrations. So Bill goes to Lewis and said, can you, we, we just, they don't qualify. They're not alcoholics. <laughs> so they didn't know what to do with this list of um, groups. And, and Lo, Bill goes to his wife, Lois, and said, can you start some families? And I'm 60 years old. I've been homeless for a long time, you know. <laughs> And now, finally, I have a home. I like to work in my garden. And you want me to do what? You know, so, so but thank God to the love of, of Lois I had for the friends and families of alcoholics that she decided to talk with her friend, Anne B., who was also, who used to attend these meetings as well. And she said, Anne, can you help me write letters? So they wrote these beautiful letters Ask it and send it to 87 groups that were registered with Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, would you like to form an Al-Anon family group and accept the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the traditions as part of our program? And out of those 87 groups, 56 res- groups responded, and my home group is one of them. So in June this year, this month, I'm sorry, we will be celebrating 67 years. So I'm grateful. So I am from Mexico, from Ensenada, Baja California. It's a drinking town. Everybody gets drunk. Everybody gets high. It's pretty normal. The first alcoholic I met was my father. My father uh, is a, you know, when I, I, ever since I remember my dad has been drunk. He's still drinking until this day. He's on his late 70s. And, you know, one of, some alcoholics do not recover, and my dad is one of them. I am the oldest of six sisters. My dad always wanted a boy. (laughs) And I was born. And so he named me after his father. His name was Magdaleno. And they just changed the O to an A, and they gave me that name. I never liked my name because uh, I didn't like church, you know, and, and Mary Magdalene is, a, you know, was an important figure in the, in the Catholic church, and she was uh, referred not as a good woman, but guess what? She went out on history. <laughs> <laughs> so I am honored to have that name today. Um, my, uh, my dad is one of those violent alcoholics. I remember as a, as a little girl, he used to get up and tell me larguchona, which means something ugly and long. It really doesn't mean anything. He would say, larguchona, go get me a bottle of tequila. And in Mexico, at that time, being a little kid, you could buy alcohol. So I remember going to the liquor store and getting him a big bottle of tequila, but on the way back, I remember walking with this big bottle of tequila and thinking, you know, I can't remember the last time I had milk. 
All we eat at home is beans and tortillas. That's all we ate sing every single day. So I would get home with this big bottle of tequila, and I would tell my dad, I can remember the last time I had milk. milk. My dad was a baker at that time, and he used to, you know, we never even had bread in the house. He never brought the bread home. So all we ate was beans and tortillas. And, and so I would tell him, here's your tequila. And by the way, I haven't had milk in a long time. So my dad used to get very upset and used to pull this skinny leather, leather belt. And, and he used to just pull it really fast and just hit me with the belt and just hit me. And I remember have, oh, I always been tall and thin, and, and I remember putting my skinny arms up to protect my face, but I had belt marks all over my arms, my legs, and I would go to school like that. And um, the kids didn't want to play with me because I'll, um, most kids in Mexico are short and chubby. And I'm tall and skinny, so I, it was really hard to hide from anybody, anybody's own. So I remember, um, you know, trying to get close to somebody, and they would say, uh, we don't want to play with you. You're, you know, how's the weather up there? <laughs> and kids can be cruel, and then they would say, and, and then look at you, your dad beat you up again. And, and then they would say, you smell like beans. And, and I did, we didn't even have a toothbrush. I, we lived in this tiny little house with two rooms, and when it rained, it rained, it rained in the house as, as well. I, I used to, um, my dad used to tell me in the morning, Larguchona, get up. And, and then he would say, go sweep the floor. And then, I, and then I would look at him, and I just hated my dad. I never had a relationship with my dad. See, I didn't know my dad was sick. I didn't know he was suffering from this terrible disease that made him do things that he would probably have would never done if he was not drinking. So I would tell him, and I, and I wanted to kill my dad. I remember wanting to kill my dad, planning how I was going to murder this guy when I got a little older. And, and he would tell me, Larguchona, go sweep the floor. And I would tell him why it's a dirt floor. You know, it didn't make sense to me, but it did to him. So... Uh, and really young, so the kids didn't want to play with me. I, I, I was being beat up at home every single day. I, we sometimes didn't have anything, you know, no gas to cook. Uh, and so we would go gather wood in the, you know, from, from the cemetery <laughs> so we could have something to eat. It was just not a, not a very good upbringing. And, and so, but I got, you know, I always have loved exercising. And so I got into yoga when I was really young. I became vegetarian. I, I was this great kid teaching adults how to do yoga. And, and uh, that was a place where I shower. And, but my self-esteem was just low. Every time, you know, my, my mom just kept having kids. And she believed that, that the poll had told them at that time that if I... Uh, People took birth control, they would go to hell. So my mom didn't want to go to hell, so she just kept having kids and not, didn't take the birth control. But she didn't know that living with somebody like my dad was living in hell. See, my dad is short, shabby, you know, big belly, big head, really ugly. <laughs> and I just didn't see what she was looking at him. He was so ugly. But, and then on top of that, he always had a girlfriend on the side. And I'm like, how does he have a girlfriend? He's so ugly. You know. But later I learned that alcoholics are good talkers. You know, so my dad was a good talker. And, and so anyways, um, kid after kid. And then one day my dad came to my mom and said, you know that I'm seeing somebody else. Um, you know she's much younger than you. And you know that I don't love you, so you need to leave and take your five kids with you. And not knowing what to do, my mom started looking for work, and there was no work in Mexico. So she, she said, can you take care of uh, your sisters, and, and I'll go to work in the U.S. And somebody had offered her a job as a nanny. 
And that's what she did. She, she came to the U.S. And, and started working and started sending money. But what happens is at this time, my dad's alcoholism for, had progressed. Instead of looking at us like we were his kids, he started looking at us like we were women. And started touching my sisters in a way a father should never touch his kids. And started spying on me when I was getting undressed. And I was so angry. I just wanted to kill this guy. And I wrote to my mom and I said, Mom, this is what's going on at home. And she said, I know. You know, she knew what was going on. And she said, if you want to come and live in the U.S. with me, you can come and, and we'll both work. And, and she said, but you can't go to school. And I said, Mom, I'm not learning anything anyways. I have stayed back in third grade three times because I was this tall, stupid kid. My dad would tell me every morning, you're stupid, you're a prostitute, women should not go to school, women should be selling food on the streets, and all those things. And, and I grew up thinking that I was all that, you know. What you tell somebody, that person becomes. And so I, I thought I was all that, and I remember thinking, I'm tall, I'm skinny, I'm, you know, I, I should not be going to school, and and I'm a prostitute, and then my friends thought, you know, they would tell me that I, that I look like a dog, and then I remember looking at, the, at a dog, and I had a dog, and, and I remember looking at my dog's lips and my lips, and we kind of look alike, you know. <laughs> in al you know, it says that in our literature that nobody can bring as cruel to ourselves as we are. So I remember barking myself in the mirror saying, you're a dog, you know. I was just so cruel, I didn't know, I didn't have the tools of the program. In Allen and I also learned that, that not everything is black and white, you know, not everything is horrible. There was a lot of wonderful things in my childhood. I had these wonderful grandparents. My grandparents loved me. They told me every single day how much they loved me. They would call me my negra, which is, you know, is, means black, and because I'm the darkest one of, of everyone in the family. And, uh, and the darker you are, the lower class you are in Mexico. You know, and, but you know what happens? Uh, I'm in Washington now, and I got a little lighter. <laughs> so, but one day, I went one day for a run here. In, uh, we, my friend and I went to um, Savannah. I went for a run, and I got this beautiful color. So back to Mother Earth color. <laughs> And so anyways, my, and my grandparents used to just love me. And I remember going to my grandmother's house, and, and, my, and my grandmother would make flour tortillas, and they would give me a, a tortilla, and I would put butter in. Oh, I just felt the love from my grandmother. And then I would go to the other room where my grandfather was, and my grandfather was this smart, smart man. He would read a lot, and he said that he traveled all over the world. And, and, uh, and I would remember sitting on my grandfather's laps, and, and, and he would read to me. And, and then when we were done reading, he would, you know, I, I, he would ask me to clean the seats out of the marijuana, you know, and then I would roll joints for him. <laughs> and then my grandfather would, you know, light up a joint and say, Hear me, how you want to take a hit? And then I would say, oh, no, Grandpa, that stinks. And then my grandfather was so smart that he would start talking to me in Japanese and Chinese, you know. He was just the smartest guy, I thought. Yeah. It took me a while before I realized, I think I had been in Al-Anon for about five years, when I realized that my grandfather was high the whole time, you know. <laughs> And marijuana really makes people lazy, so I don't think he ever went anywhere. You know, but he still had a lot of love for me. So when I started dating, I didn't want anything to do with alcoholics. But if that person was an addict, of course, I, you know, I remember, reminded me of the love of my grandfather. So one day, you know, so I came to the U.S., like most Mexicans do, I jumped the fence and came to work. <laughs> and I went to work at a chicken farm. And in this chicken farm, there's rows and rows and rows of chickens, right? 
and they have like a metal box, and under the chickens, there's a chicken poop, right? And so when immigration came to take the illegal Mexicans back to Mexico, some of the Mexicans will run up the hill to hide, and some of us will hide in the chicken poop. And boy, I was one of those who hid in the chicken poop, you know? And when you're sitting in the chicken poop, <laughs> there's worms, there's bugs, and they just stick to your skin. And the chicken poop is really creamy, you know? <laughs> so it's hard to get rid of it, and it has this strong odor when it becomes part of you, part of your skin. So when I didn't hear any noise, you know, I didn't want it to be deported because I, that meant I would have to go back to the monster, and I didn't want to do that. And, and so sometimes I got deported, and sometimes I did not, you know. But I remember coming out and trying to clean the chicken poop out of me and the worms, and, and I remember thinking, I'm just like the chicken poop. <laughs> I don't exist. I'm not even, I don't even exist in this country. I'm the worst of the worst. And then those old tapes will come back to me. I'm a prostitute. I'm, you know, I'm too dark, too skinny, and whatever. And, uh, and my dad was not there anymore. He was not there to tell me those things. But they were part of me at that time. And, and so in, in Allen and I learned that just because somebody calls you one thing, that doesn't mean you are. You know, in our courage, to, on our one day at a time says that when, when an alcoholic calls you names, it's just a reflection of how that person feels. So my dad was just talking about himself, but I didn't know that I was part of that. And, um, and, and you know, how do people get rid of those thoughts? You know, without working on the steps, the speakers have been so eloquently talking about how to get rid of those. How do you get rid of the, of the, you know, whatever thoughts you have in your mind that are part of you? Only the God of our understanding can remove that insanity. You know, how else can that be removed? I don't know. But anyways, um, one day I asked my mom if I could go to school because I didn't have any friends and I was 15 years old. And she said, well, you can go to school, but you can't stop working. And I said, of course not, Mom. You know, so I went to school, and, and to Nike school, and that's where I saw the most beautiful guy in the universe. <laughs> there he was, you know. He was tall, skinny, long, beautiful hair. And I saw him, and I just felt in love with him. There was just nobody else. You know, there was just nobody else. He was it. And then I looked at him how beautiful he was. And then I looked at myself, and I saw all those tapes again. You know, he'll never look at you. But in Al-Anon, in our literature also talks about that anything you let go has claw marks on him. You know, so even though I felt so bad about myself, I was not going to let him go that easily. <laughs> and, and so one day I, was, I had one friend now. Finally, I had my one friend, and, and I would walk around the halls, the halls, you know, at night, and, and then I would see him walk with all of his friends. This guy was so beautiful, so popular. And I remember spying on him, you know. Now they call it stalking, you know. But <laughs> back then I was spying on him, and I remember looking at him, and, and then I would... I would start throwing kisses at him, you know, and then I would push my friend so he would think it was her, but, you know, he realized it was me, and one day I was uh, at the park with this one friend, and, and he called me over, and I'm like, I got so excited that he knew I, I existed in this world. And, uh, and he calls me over, and when we introduced ourselves, and he said, would you like to go to a concert tonight? I'm like, I wonder what that is, you know? <laughs> and, she, he's, and, and it was in 1975, and Bad Company was playing in San Diego. <laughs> so, so I got to go, you know, so he came and picked me up, and, and I, he had this little Nova, and I got to sit next to him, and, and I looked in the back seat of the car, there was a lot of people, they were piled up on top of each other, you know? <laughs> This is before seatbelt laws, and, and, uh, 
he put this eight track player and put it on the stereo this loud music of rock and roll came out and oh my god I was just so impressed <laughs> and uh, they started smoking marijuana and drinking and I thought oh, I took a deep breath and I'm like I'm back on my grandfather's laps you know and, and so they passed it in front of me and I said oh no thank you because see I don't smoke right I've never been drunk or high in my life and so, I, but in, I thought in my head, you know, I can roll them for you, because by that time, <laughs> I had years of experience. Yeah. But I didn't say anything because it was our first date, you know. <laughs> so we dated for two years, lots of concerts, lots of fighting, lots of DUIs, lots of everything. And a couple of times he tried to kill me because he was high on acid, and, and I remember as I was being shocked, you know, by this guy that I love so much, I kept thinking, you know, this guy just needs a, a little love, you know. <laughs> if I love him enough, he's going to stop drinking. And, and his mom abandoned him in Mexico when he was a little boy, so he grew up on the streets. And, and, and so he really was homeless most of his life. And so I said, but when we get married, we're going to, you know, be okay. I'm just going to love him enough that he's going to stop drinking. We're going to live in a nice neighborhood in Rancho Bernardo. We're going to play tennis in the weekends. And, and we're going to have two lowriders park in the driveway. You know? <laughs> but of course, none of that happened. I, I was pregnant. And, uh, and I told him, you know, I'm a strong woman. You don't need to marry me. He said, you're crazy. We're going to marry so we got married, and I'm walking down the aisle, I'm thinking, am I really a prostitute? How could my dad think that of me? You know, but can this be true? You know, I'm marrying the guy of my dreams. Can this be true? And, and, but I'm still walking down the aisle, and, and uh, I thought, you know, when we get married, he's going to stay home. And of course, that's not what happened. I stayed home, and he went with his friends. Then I started looking at me. How dare you think you're, you know, that you were somebody special, that he would marry you, you know, he, that he loved you? What were you thinking? And again, you know, you're so horrible. Bark at myself in the mirror and everything. And, and uh, we had this beautiful girl. You know, she was just so gorgeous. Her name is Mirabella, which means look at the beauty. And I remember looking at her, and she just looked just like her dad. And I thought, you know, she's part of two people that loved each other so much, and this is the, the fruit of that love. And my daughter looked just like my husband, and I remember looking at her and saying, you are just so gorgeous. I'm going to love you and protect you so nobody will hurt you like I've been hurt. You know what? I meant that. I, I meant I love my daughter. But see, I didn't know that living with an alcoholic, we become sick too. And I was sick way before I met my husband. And all my concentration was on the alcoholic, on what he was doing, what he was about to do, and, and um, you know, prevent him from do, doing whatever he was to do. And, and so I, my whole concentration stopped on my daughter and went straight to the alcoholic. And, and uh, my husband started shoplifting I, because now he was a heroin addict. Um, I started shoplifting with him because, after all, he needed a supportive wife. You know, <laughs> my sister was, were now living in the U.S., they, were, they had become gang members, they had lowriders, they, they, some of them were married to alcoholics, some of them were addicts themselves, alcoholics. I remember one of my sisters, um, she was, uh, one day they had to put her in a bathtub to wake her up from the alcohol because she was overdosing, and, and that's the life that I saw every day, every single day. And I, I, just, I just didn't know what to do. I remember cooking for my husband so he will stay home, not cooking, beating him up, not beating him up, everything from preventing from going out and getting drunk and leaving me. And, uh, and, and so things just continued to get worse. I remember waiting for him and, and uh, waiting for him and 
calling everybody, calling the hospital, his mom, his friends, everybody. And, and when I couldn't find him, I remember waiting, putting something sexy on, because I was waiting for him, right? But by two, three, four in the morning, I was no longer feeling sexy. So I would go to the kitchen door, grab a knife, and just wait for him. You know? <laughs> and he would walk in, and I just wanted to kill him, you know. We broke mirrors, pots and pans would fly everywhere. And then his friends, we always lived in these neighborhoods where there was a lot of, a lot of gang, a lot of uh, drugs, uh, you know, that type of neighborhood. And, and I remember, you know, the friends used to come upstairs and, Magdalena, leave him alone. And I'm here with a knife and I say, if you don't leave, I'm going to get you too. So the guys would just leave. You know, these were not nice people, but they thought I was crazy. <laughs> so, so anyways, um, I thought, okay, nothing is working. So I decided if I have another child and I name him after him, that's going to make him stop working, you know. And I had a child, and I made that same promise to my son. I, I named him Carlos after my husband, and I thought, that's the key, you know. And, and of course, that didn't happen. Now I had two beautiful little kids that I didn't take care of. God had given me these two kids, and I was not taking care of them. I used to take them to my sisters to, to be cared for. I was now working at a factory working 12 hours a day, and every penny that I had was to bail my husband out of jail. So when he would come home, he would tell me how beautiful I was because he would do that when he was high, and that was the only time. So I was buying love. I was prostituting myself, you know, with the person that I love so he could tell me that I was okay because I didn't think that of myself. And, and, uh, and so that didn't work. Now my husband and my... And my um, my grandfather are getting high together. My mom has a new child. She has a boyfriend. She has another daughter. Now her and her boyfriend are selling heroin to my husband. And I just don't know what to do. You know, there was just no way out. They, they, I thought, you know, if, if I get high with them, maybe that will work. Our, our step two on our 12 by 12 says that some of us drink with the alcoholic, so it'll be less for them. And, and, but, and I thought about that, but it's like, who's going to take care of the kids if I do that? So I just never had the guts to, to get drunk. And uh, during this time, you know, I remember not knowing what to do, where to go, and the only, reason, the only way out was suicide. And I put my kids in the back seat of a car, you know, and I got in the freeway, and I just wanted to die, you know. I thought people... You know, I thought, okay, where can I go get help? There's no help. I knew there was Alcoholics Anonymous, but there was no help for the families. I thought, I remember going to church as a child and thinking, you know, the priest will say, um, you got to pray this so many prayers and, and get on your knees, but that didn't help. I felt worse when I pray. And I thought, you know, maybe I can go to counseling, but... I thought people like me didn't go to counseling. I thought people that went to counselors were those who had boogers coming out of their nose and saliva. And, you know, I looked in the mirror. There was a lot of things wrong with me, but no liquids coming out of my face, you know. <laughs> so I didn't belong there. There was just nowhere to go. I live in this dark, cold room. And, uh, and so I put the, my kids in the, in the car, and I remember driving... 100 miles an hour, and I just wanted to die. I knew that if my kids would get lucky to grow up, they would end up in prison, in a mental hospital, or they were going to die in a, in a gang shooting or overdosing on heroin because people at that time you know, were dropping dead. And, and I just, I love my kids so much, but I just didn't know how to take care of them. I used, the kids used to come and want to talk to me, and I would say, no, just leave me alone. Go to your room. I, I just, I got to think, you know. I just got to think. 
I was not feeding my kids. I was, I was hitting them. Same thing that my dad did to me, I was doing to my kids. I had forgot the promise that I had made to those kids because all my concentration, again, was on the alcoholic. And so I got to the car, and I was driving, and I said, if there's somebody up there, please help me stop because I just want to die. You know, I just want to die. And, and, uh, and, you know, when we ask God for help, it doesn't matter which way we ask for help. God listens. It might take him some time, you know, but God listens. And during that time, my husband went to, to you know, so I was able to stop. And, and, and my husband went to court, and the judge told him, you either go to treatment or you go to prison. And he shows treatment. So he went to treatment, and that's when I was introduced to Al-Anon. And I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and I remember sitting there, you know, just sitting there looking at everybody, and I felt better then, you know, the false pride that kills many of us. And I just remember sitting there and thinking, you know, my husband's an addict. He's not an alcoholic. You know, I don't think I belong here, you know. I thought, I thought addicts were higher class than the alcoholics, you know. <laughs> I didn't want to see that I was married to somebody just like my dad. And, and so I had, somebody asked me to speak, and I said, well, I don't think I belong here. You know, I, I, I said, my, my husband's an addict. He's not an alcoholic. And this really nice lady tapped me on the shoulder. She said, dear, keep coming back. And, you know, while I was sitting there, I was thinking, my sisters are low, you know, they have their low riders. You know, they're, they're, I'm married to this guy, this hard dude guy with tattoos, you know. I had nothing. And, and so I didn't come back, and six months went by. I decided that the problem was my husband's friend, so we moved to Tijuana. I'm still illegal. And we got a house, we rented a house in Mexico, and I'm coming to driving every single day uh, to um, Escondido or Vista is where we worked. And, and uh, so I would drive 160 miles a day just to keep him away from his friends. And he found new friends, and you guys know this story. So I decided that I needed to take karate classes because he needed a stronger message. So I went and I took karate classes. And when he would come home, I thought I had gained this kind of serenity. And when he would come home late at night, instead of waiting by the window, I would just be in bed, you know. And when he walked into the room, I would jump out and go, ha, ha, you know. I wanted to cut him in pieces before he got into the bedroom. And that didn't work, you know. <laughs> he continued to drink. And uh, one day, I remember um, he went to treatment, got out, started using again and drinking and um, and this day was different. Something happened. I think God finally said, it's time, Magdalena. And I remember, you know, I, looked, I was driving those 160 miles a day, and I remember looking on the ride, and I saw my husband, and I no longer care. Something happened. I no longer care. And I looked in the back seat of the car, and there were my two kids. And my kids were super thin. My kids were born vegetarian. You know, there was no milk in Mexico. There's not enough vegetables because fast food. You know, um, there was just nothing. And my kids didn't play. There's no water in Mexico. You know, who took him there? Not my husband. I did. My insane thinking took me there. And, and I remember looking at those kids, and those kids didn't smile anymore. They had the saddest look on their face, and they just looked like skinny zombies, you know, just there. And the upholstery of the car had been turned down, and I didn't know that that had happened. And I remember, like, waking up of a nightmare and thinking, how did I get here? I love my kids, but I didn't know how to love them. And that day, I remember my first Al-Anon meeting. And the only thing that I remember from my first Al-Anon meeting is keep coming back and first things first. And my kids were first at that time. And on that day, on that week, I decided to move back into the States and let go of my husband. And my husband went to, to prison for a year. 
and I went back to Al-Anon. And this time, this time, I just, I, I had the hope that things would get better. I was ready. I, I no longer wanted to die. I wanted to leave. I got the hope from my first meeting. And so I, I, I sat there, and I was ready to do anything, anything the program told me to do because my ideas no longer worked. My ideas didn't work. And so I, I went, we moved into this, this um, two-bedroom apartment, and there was water where the kids can play. You know, there was grass, and the kids were happy. You know, the kids were happy. And, and, um, and, and so I went to my second Allen and meeting, and I just sat there, and I was shaking. I was shaking. I was so cold. I did not speak English, guys. If you don't like my accent or my, the way I speak, is you taught me that. So <laughs> you can only blame yourself. <laughs> so I did speak English and I sat in that meeting and, and I remember just shaking. I didn't want to get kicked out, but there was no Spanish meetings. There was no Spanish meetings. And I just sat there and I had this big heavy jacket. My, I had holes on my jeans. My hair was cut in different ways because my, hair, my husband used to cut my hair when he was drunk so we could save a little money. You know, so I just did not look healthy. And I was way underweight. I had anemia. I, I just sat there. I was shaking. And, it, you know, when we, every, I truly believe that everything happens for a reason. This was a large meeting in a small room. So when I got there... I was shaking, 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 and, and I was shaking because I was cold, you know, the cold, the loneliness in your heart that there's not enough jackets or blankets to cover the pain. You know, I was just so lonely, and, and a person sat next to me and touched my shoulder, and another person sat next to me, and they touched my shoulder, and I stopped shaking. You know, the love in the room started healing my heart. And they asked me, would you like to share? And I said, I can't. I don't speak English. And she said, share whatever you want. And, and, and so I couldn't understand. I, I could understand more than I could speak. And I said, I'll pass. You know, because I heard other people say they'll pass. So I just, <laughs> they were probably grateful. <laughs> so in my second or third meeting, I heard, I heard get a sponsor, work the steps, stay connected. Keep coming back, do service, and read the literature. So I thought, okay, okay. Um, so in my third meeting, I, I went out, I went and I asked this person to be my sponsor, and and I asked Ralph to be my sponsor because every time somebody share, Ralph will acknowledge the person. And you know, our literature says that that when when a, when we live in an alcoholic homes, we speak a different language. I didn't understand why my husband, my sisters, everybody else would laugh. It's like, what are they laughing about? That's not funny. And then I would try to say something, and they didn't hear me, so I talk a little louder, and then they did too, and it was just a mess. It, it was chaos. But, but my, you know, when somebody shared Ralph list, and so after the meeting, I went up to Ralph and I said, "Would you be my sponsor?" And see, I didn't know Ralph was from England, and Ralph has this strong English accent. I'm from Mexico, I can't speak English. But Ralph said, he looked at me and he said, we'll give it a try. See, Alanon says when anyone, anywhere, reaches out for help, let the hand of Alanon always be there. And Ralph was there for me. And you know, that's when the love story begins. Ralph's still my sponsor today. I spoke with him this morning. And, and Ralph and I have built this loving relationship that, that he has brought me into every step of the program. We started getting together, and, uh, and, and we used to get together at the park and go over the steps. And, and I started bringing my kids into the park because... I, couldn't, I learned that I couldn't trust my sisters with my kids anymore because my kids were coming home with cigarette burns on their skin. And see, it wasn't my sisters. It was the disease of alcoholism that had taken over. 
I know my sisters love my kids. They still do until this day. They just love my kids. But that disease had taken over. And, and so I used to bring my kids into the park, and, and while Ralph and I would ride the steps, you know, and talk, my kids would play in the park. And, uh, and I remember telling Ralph, you know, we went through step one, step two, you know, step three. Um, and, uh, and I told him, I have a hard time with the God of my understanding. He always punishes me. And he said, well, make it what, what do you want your God to be? And, and, he said, and so I made a list. I want somebody that laughs with me, somebody that swims with me. I love the beach. So, you know, I want somebody that runs with me. And, and I want somebody that loves me just the way I am. And he's like, that's, you got him. That's your God. You know, and, and so we, um, we, I, I went to, you know, my step four and five. And I told him, Ralph, you know, um, I'm stupid. He's like, no, you're not, Magdalena. You need to stop calling yourself names. And, 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 and he said, see that bird out there? And, and uh, it was a crow. And, and I said, yeah. He's like, what do you think of that bird? Well, it's beautiful. It's black. It's shiny. And, and he said, do you think the bird gets up in the morning and looks in the mirror? It says, you're so dark. <laughs> Your feathers are out of place. No, that bird gets up in the morning and goes and does God's will. He goes and gets food for the kids, comes home at night, works on building the house. That's what we do, Magdalena. We do God's will. And by the way, you are nobody, nobody to call yourself names. You are a child of God, and we're all perfect. And he said, don't you think that if we all look alike, this world will be pretty boring. And I say, yes. You know, so I stopped calling myself names. I remember going for a run, and before, before you know, I, if somebody passed me, I would say, oh, my God, you're so slow. Look at you. That guy's passing you, and he's older than you. <laughs> but Rob said I can call myself names, so I started, every time somebody passed me, I would sing, pretty woman running down the street. <laughs> I remember Ralph also told me, Magdalena, you are equals to everybody. You're no less or no more than anybody. God did not intend any of his children to be less or more than others. So I believe Ralph, he said, you are equals to anybody in the meeting. Your voice counts. So I started standing up straight looking at everybody in the eye, and I became a part of the universe. You know, I became a part of you. And then... Uh, <laughs> I thought, you know, um, I know, I know, I know what the problem is in my home now. So I went out and I started an al meeting in Spanish, hoping my family will come, but nobody came. <laughs> None of my family members, other people came. And so then I, there was no Alatine meetings um, in the area at that time. And I remember telling my friends, we need to start an Alatine meeting. And they said, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. But nobody, you know, and Alatine says, let it begin with me. Let it begin with me. So I went out and I asked my sponsor if he will... Uh, nominate me to be the Alatin, to start an Alatin meeting, and, and he did. And so I started an Alatin meeting, and, and then I started one in Spanish, one in English, that I was just so busy. I, since uh, a lot of the women didn't drive, so I would go pick them up, you know, and bring them to the meetings. And, and so I was just really busy to service that when my husband got out of prison, I had no time to take care of him. <laughs> So, service. So, one day he's home, you know, and and, and in Alan and I learned, you know, I I would call Ralph and say, Ralph, my kids cry a lot. I just I just don't know what to do. I get stressed out. And he said, Okay, Magdalena, you go to the bathroom, you pray, wash your face with cold water, and then you go take care of your kids. If your kids are crying, it's there's a reason why they're crying. 
And, and so my friend said in the program, he's like, when you pick up the kids from the daycare, you, you, know, you feed them, you help them with their homework, you take them out for a walk, you come back, you give them a bath, you put them in bed, you um, it reads something to the kids, and then you put yourself in bed and you read. Because in the Al-Anon pamphlet of Just for Today, it says, just for today, I will, I will strengthen my mind. I will not be a mental loafer. I will study something useful. So that's what I was doing when my husband walks into the room and he tells me, if you don't do A, B, and C, I'm going to go out and get drunk. And I said, oh, okay. In, in the past, it was like, I will stand on the door and say, don't leave me. <laughs> and then he will push me out of the way. And he will leave anyways. But this time I said, oh, well, just make sure you lock the door on the way out. You know? <laughs> I had learned to detach. <laughs> but, uh, you know, instead of going out to get drunk, he went to an AA meeting, and today he's been sober for 34 years, you know. <laughs> It was 1990, and the world was gathering in Seattle. The International Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous and Allen were gathering. I told my husband, "Why can't we go? We, you know, we can go. You know, by this time we had a home. You know what happens when we stop bailing the alcoholic out of jail? There's money." <laughs> so we bought a home, a boat, a trailer, everything that that you know. These two kids that didn't have anything had, you know, wanted our dreams, you know. And, but we came to, to the International and we just felt in love with Seattle. It was just so beautiful. And, and I remember telling God, you are just so gorgeous. You bring a, pe a person like me into this beautiful area with there's trees and there's rivers. I had never seen a river before. And, and so... And, and then I remember going for a run and, and talking with, you know, on the 11th step, talking with my higher power and say, why do you love, you know, why are you so kind to me? And then I found a heart that said, I love you. And, and that's, that was the message, you know, we talk with God on the 11th step and then God sends us a message, you know. Sometimes they're just so right in front of us. And, and so, so anyways, uh, I, my husband and I talked and we said, you know, why can't we move to Seattle? You know, we will have a family there. Wherever we go, there's AA and Al-Anon. And so we decided to sell everything because, see, money is important. It's important energy, but it's not everything. This program gives you all the tools that we need to, to survive and, and, and to have a good quality of life. God doesn't take us from the dumps to put us in a worse situation. When we work a program, we have everything, everything. I just feel so fortunate that I, you know, that I was, uh, like somebody said, empty enough to allow God to, to be in my life. So, so anyways, uh, we, we um, went into... Um, we moved into this one-bedroom apartment. The kids thought they were camping every night because it was so green. I, I went to work at a Denny's restaurant. My husband used to make elevators. Now he was cleaning elevators. But we didn't care because we had you. We had our hearts full. And so I went to that local intergroup office, and I said, do you have any service positions for me? Because I know I can't keep it unless I give it away. And they said, well, well, keep coming back so we can get to know you better. You know, I just keep hearing this, keep coming back, you know. So I kept going back, and finally they gave me the great honor to be the Alatin coordinator for the Seattle Intergroup Office. And I got busy again. There was no Spanish meetings. I started Spanish meetings. You know, the Alatin started Alatin meeting. Kids were busy in Alatin. Um, my husband was busy starting meetings, uh, Spanish meetings and AA meetings, and we were just busy, busy, busy. We love this. You know, in, in these programs, you never get tired. <laughs> you never get bored. There's always something to do, always, always. And, and so, so anyways, one day we noticed that although our daughter was very active in other things, she started looking different. And, uh, and I, you know, long story short, we learned that she was drinking. And I, I remember looking at my daughter. She had become this beautiful teenager. 
But she was coming home with bruises in her skin and then black bags under her eyes. I was like, what is going on? I just couldn't understand. And and, uh, when we learned that she was drinking, we said, you know, Mirabella, we can take you to treatment, go get help. And so that's where her journey started, in and out of treatment. And she would come home and, and drink again, and she would come home and drink again. And then, but we still had this little boy in the home that Alanon says, our tradition says, tradition one says, that we grow in unity. And if one member is not participating in the unity, we can ask him to leave. So our daughter was not participating in unity because she would come home and say to our son, if you don't drink with me, you're not a man. And she was affecting the harmony of the, of the, of the family. In Alan and I also learned that, that I can turn my loved ones over to the care of God. And they, if they're in the care of God, can they be in better hands than in the care on the hands of God? If the God, the God of my understanding created the beautiful universe, the stars and the sky, that every move, everything moves in a perfect way, why can't I trust God with my beautiful child? So I learned that God had the power to care for my child, and, and my husband and I decided to ask her to leave until she was ready. Because see, in Alan I learned that the more, the more I make somebody comfortable, if I give her a home to stay, food to eat, warm clothing and everything, would she get sober? She has everything at home. Why would she get sober? I'm only enabling her to kill herself. And in Alan and I learned that it is too painful for us to watch our loved ones slowly kill themselves in front of us. So we had to ask her to leave. And, and then uh, one day, you know, it gets so cold in Seattle, and, and one day she comes home in November and says, Mom, I want to go to treatment. And I said, no. You go to AA, work the steps, get a sponsor, and you're going to be Okay. And because I trust Alcoholics Anonymous, I trust you saved my husband's life and countless others, so you, I trust you with my child. And, and my daughter got really close to me, and she had been drinking, and when she got really close to me, she smelled just like my dad. You know, the stale alcohol that I so much hated on my dad, my daughter had. And she looked at me, and she said, Mom, don't you understand I can't stop drinking? It's like, no, you know, it's hard for me to understand the power of the disease of alcoholism, but you guys in AA can. So my husband and I said, okay, we'll take you to treatment one more time. And it was a Thanksgiving weekend, and we wrapped our daughter in a blanket, and, and we took her to treatment. And, and it was a snowy day, and in this treatment center, they took her to a Native American meeting. The Native American meeting needed a coffee person, and her being in Alatine for a number of years, she knows all about service. So she became the coffee person, and today, by the grace of God and Alcoholics Anonymous, she's been sober for 24 years. And I'm just so grateful, so grateful. Mirabella got married to the guy of her dreams. You know, and another person in recovery, but unfortunately he relapsed after two years, and she had a beautiful daughter, Solana, and uh, and she went to this guy and said, you know, I love you, but I love my daughter and my sobriety more, and she walked out just like that. You know, she didn't need to take karate or belly <laughs> nothing. These kids are so smart. <laughs> Today, she's, you know, after 10 years, she remarried. She's got two more kids, and, and she's just, you know, she's back in school, and, and she has a life that, that she loves. I love seeing my grandkids. They're the miracle of the program. See, when we're in so much pain, we don't know what's on the other side. We don't know what God has in front of us. I have 
beautiful grandkids that I would have missed the opportunity if, if I would have succeeded in the pain of killing them. You know, a, only a program like this can save you know, our lives. Uh, Ralph told me that, Magdalena, without an education, you're not going to do anything in life. I said, there's nothing wrong with the jobs that you have but you can do better. I said, no, Ralph, remember, I'm stupid. I can't learn. He said, no, you're not. He said, you go back to school. And, and because of my sponsor believed in me, I went back to school. And in 1999, I graduated with a four-year college degree. You know, so... Today I work for the state of Washington as a parole officer. <laughs> I send people to AA and treatment. And if I, if I see them drinking, you know, I have no problem taking them to jail. <laughs> My job is dangerous. You know, I, um, I go into their homes, dark homes. Somehow alcoholics like to have dark rooms for some reason. <laughs> we take out their weapons, you know, their alcohol, their drugs, and they don't like that. You know, so it can be dangerous, or it is dangerous. Uh, so one day I, I called Ralph, this is years ago, I said, Ralph, you know, uh, I think I need to be armed because, you know, my job. And he said, but I don't know if I can pass this psychological evaluation because, you know, I'm kind of crazy. And, and Ross said, well, Magdalena, if God wants you to, ha to have a gun, you will. So today I'm an armed officer, you know. <laughs> I called my sisters, go, guess what? I have a gun. <laughs> and they were really concerned for my husband, you know. But <laughs> they don't understand recovery. My husband would not let me cough him, you know. Can I play with you and cough you? He's like, no, stay away from me. Um, today I have a relationship with my family that I... You know, that I never thought I, this would happen. Um, a few years ago, I was speaking somewhere in Southern California, and, and I said, I think it's time I talk to my dad. He's sick, you know. So I went and I visited him, and of course, he's drunk, you know. He pees on himself. Uh, he's just not, not the person that I used to know. Uh, but I know he's not okay because if nothing changes, nothing changes. But today I'm an adult. You know, I understand that disease and I know how to protect myself. So I went, uh, I went and I, I sat with him and, uh, and other relatives and, and, um, and as we had a little conversation like, how's the weather? How's your mom? How's everybody? You know, because you can't have a conversation with a bottle. There's no relationship with a bottle. That's all my dad is today. And, but I did my very best because, see, I have a program. He doesn't. I am responsible. And, and so I went, I went up to him, and then after I, I was leaving, I gave him a hug. And then these words came out, Dad, I love you. It's like, my gosh, who's that? You know? <laughs> and my dad started to cry. You know, he started to cry. And, and, and then I got in the car, and as, as I was leaving, he called me back, and he said, he's like, I want to tell you that thank you for forgiving me. And that was it, you know. I went back to see him in January because, I, you know, we hear these things like, he's going to die, he's going to die. But he does not die, you know. <laughs> he's been dying for years. I think he's fermented in alcohol. <laughs> I have a relationship with my sisters that, that it's just, it wouldn't happen if it wasn't for this program. I just don't tell them what to do. You know, um, I have a, a relationship with my mom because my, my mom, again, she's one of us, Al-Anon. She's never been drunk. She's never been high in her life, but she is just very negative. And once a year, I do my very best to take a trip with her, go somewhere. And she tells me every and I call her once a week again because I have a program. I want to be the best daughter I can possibly be. Uh, she was not fortunate enough to get here, but I'm here. And, and that disease is contagious, but so is the recovery. So I was talking with her on Monday, and I said, Mom, you know, and we were just talking about whatever, and she said, 
She said, you know, it's so good to talk to you. I just always love when you talk to me. I always get this sense of serenity, but it's because of the program. Um, Carlos and I have now been married for, oh, if we make it by June 25th, we'll be married for 41 years. <laughs> um, I continue in service. I, be, I was the delegate of the state of Washington. And today I have a life that I, I never dreamed it could exist, but it's because of you. I'm going to end with a little story that I you always end. Um, when I was a little girl, I, I remember being full of open wounds, blood everywhere, you know. And we'll go to the beach because that's what we do for fun in Ensenada. And I remember going under the wave and hoping, well, I was under the wave, hoping that I would come out in an other world where everybody loved each other, where there was healing, where there was love, where there was understanding. And I remember coming out of the, on the other side of the way and there was nothing, still the same. Today, I feel that I have gone under the wave and I have come out and I have all of you. Thank you so much for my life and God bless you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.